Episode 3 Sheikh Zain Abdul How to Save the Ummah to help you find your GPS signal <laughs> so that you don't become uh, lost. Uh, so the topic is how to save uh, the Ummah and the underlining theme behind that is that unity is the most tangible aspect out of many aspects that uh, we can hopefully achieve. In the video that I made, did anybody see that 30 second video? Right, hands up who saw the video. Keep your hands up. Alright, keep your hands up. The hands up. And the AD folk. Hands up. I asked a question about what unites us, and I said that we're going to ask. So, now you know the purpose of the hands being up. Insha'Allah. So, <laughs> what unites us? <clears throat> Shall I come back to you, Krishna, the first? No, uh, in my opinion, I think uh, as, Mus as Muslims, what unites us is uh, I mean, the, the, the religion, basically. Okay, the religion. Sister, engineering, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> What unites us? Uh, our faith. Our faith. Anybody want to say anything else other than faith? Salah. Salah. Social events. Social events. Interesting. Our conduct. Our conduct unites us. Okay. Jum'ah prayer. Jum'ah prayer. Last one. Love for Allah. Love for Allah, okay. Now that can't be the last one, inshallah. It's beautiful. <laughs> Let's see what else comes up. Brother Ali Andrew. I was going to say belief in one God. Belief in one God, like that, Allah. Okay. Uh, the question uh, is a very intriguing question, what unites us. Uh, because what keeps us together, uh, the most simple thing, is our, our faith. I'm from uh, Liverpool, uh, will be 40 this Sunday, and I have nothing in common <laughs> other than uh, we share the same faith. And because of that, you are my brother and you are my sister, sisters, and I'm obviously, that's reciprocated back. But if it wasn't for Islam, I'd have nothing in common with yourselves. I have nothing in common with you either. But because of our faith, um, there's a global ummah, a community, that is deeper than, uh, deeper than blood. Right. In that case, if our faith is what unites us, then the question that arises, why is it not uniting us right now? Why is our current understanding and practice of our faith uh, not uniting us because it can be argued 
you just switch on the TV and you see what's happening in the country that my parents are from, Yemen, or uh, in Iraq, or in other countries, you are not seeing a united Ummah. Just simply looking around at um, different chat rooms, if they still exist, or you know, on social media, will that our faith, what you um, hypothesize is what unites us, is not uniting us in the current way we are practicing it. Would you, would you agree? Because we are literally at each other's throats. We are literally killing one another. And more often than that, it's uh, around or on sectarian lines. Each one's using Islam to justify killing the other. And this is, you can't, that's reality right now. So why is not faith the way it's being practiced and understood currently? Why is it not um, doing what it should be doing? Why is it not, you know, what's the labor on the tin? Why is it not, you know, seeing the realities of that? Brother Hassan mentioned about the Ottoman Empire and, you know, the glory days. So why are we now not in the glory days? And it's actually a, a, a huge honor and privilege um, to talk about this because this was something that myself as a student uh, many years ago was at the forefront of my thoughts and many, many other um, students. And when you reach the age of, of 40, uh, you begin to look back at what you've done and the things you've done. And you also have a very unique uh, position of looking at other people and what they've done. So when I now, uh, reflecting on 20 years or so uh, of um, thinking and pondering and attempting to try to unify uh, the Ummah in the little way that I can, I also look back at other people that I grew up with and their attempts and any achievements. And just to share with you, you know, it's interesting that um, growing up in the, as a student in the late 90s, this topic was always a topic for us as well, as students. How can we unite the Ummah? Very different type of challenges back then, but essentially the Ummah 20 something years ago was very fragmented. Uh, uh, although the killings that we're seeing now on the sectarian lines wasn't as, uh, as pronounced and severe, but nonetheless, still we're united. And this pushed a lot of brothers and sisters uh, who were very activists at university to try and uh, um, do something. As students, young Muslims who have a hurqa, like a fire in their hearts to try and do something about this ummah, the ummah of our Prophet that Allah said you are ummah, the best of nations literally has been brought out for people. The idea that we are examples brought out uh, to mankind. But when we saw what was going on around the world, it pushed a lot of brothers to um, think of how to uh, unite. And uh, a few of brothers, mashallah, I, uh, I was looking at and their approaches, and some of them had very political approaches. So some of them, for them, it was um, establishing the Khilafah, was a, a priority. It was a big movement in the, um, 
early 90s, mid 90s, and late 90s, big movement to uh, the Khilafah is what's going to solve our uh, problems. And many, many brothers uh, were shakers and movers of that movement. And then we had other type of um, softer political um, uh, activism encloped in, in, in Islam. And I recently met up with some of them. And I remember them in their glory days. And I wouldn't be exaggerating in saying that some of, the, some of these people that I'm talking about, that they probably influenced some of your parents. If you're not, you not a first generation, if your parents came to university and were active and practicing Islam, the people that I'm referring to right now, they would have the input into the Islam of your, of your parents or your uh, extended relatives who came to university at that time. Uh, but fast forward 20 years later, uh, when I'm seeing these, these sincere brothers, I, I would argue, they are no longer interested in the Ummah. Or maybe more precisely, they've burnt out. And the approaches that they adopted um, for many years didn't provide the fruits that they anticipated. It didn't unite the Ummah. And they simply burnt out. And some of them became disillusioned. And some of them left Islam. Some of them are just practicing Islam. And for the most part, all of them, family, kids, house, and so on and so forth. But what was interesting uh, for me was that this experience, this activism, uh, that they were heavily involved in, A, did not unite the Ummah, and B, left no long-lasting impact on them. Several years of your life trying to do something, and it's left them in the same, if not worse, situation prior to their uh, uh, activism, what to call it that. Um, Islam's not, not meant to be a burnt-out religion. It's simply not meant to be uh, something as flimsy as that. And Allah Azza wa says it in the Quran, and I saw it on the Facebook, um, this verse of Quran was used uh, to talk about the new committee. Have you not seen how Allah <coughs> strikes a likeness, a, go a goodly word? It's like a goodly tree. The roots of it is firm. Its branches are in the heaven. It brings forth its fruit at every time by the permission of Allah. Thus does Allah make likeness for men and women that perhaps they may reflect. And the likeness of an evil word is similar to an evil tree that has been torn up by the roots from the earth and possesses no stability. And the ulama, when they've commented on this verse of Quran, they've said that the goodly word here is, is the face of Islam. And the evil word and the, similar, and the similitude of the, of the bad tree is uh, disbelief. But the fact I'm trying, to, what I'm trying to put across here is that the goodly word, as emanated in the tree with the roots, is stable. It does not shake. Whereas that 
doctrine which is not based on anything worthwhile, does not bore or bear fruits by the permission of Allah. You know, it's, it's, its instability does not last. And for me, seeing these brothers who no doubt they influenced many, many hundreds of thousands of people in their heyday, seeing them burnt out, disillusioned, as someone who, who's watched them and seen where they are now, and seen the state they're in right now, they seem to resemble the last tree. There's no stability, there's no fruits, either within themselves or even in the wider uh, Ummah. So, maybe a different approach is needed. Maybe we need to rethink. Maybe setting up a, 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 a khilafah from the word go is not the answer. Maybe uh, these type of um, um, top-down uh, methods are not really working. As we've seen now in the, um, the Arab Springs, the vast majority have failed miserably. We have thousands of Syrians now living in the UK. And I've met some, and they say, we don't want to be here. They're not happy to be here. They've been stripped. My own uh, ancestral land, Yemen, is a mess. So, clearly some of the, uh, these misadventures have not worked. Have not worked. So if you go back to that idea that our faith is what is uniting us, then why is it not uniting us currently? And that begs us now to re-examine how we currently understand and practice our faith. Which then should allow us to answer why Allah has not given His support to the many endeavors that are currently happening. Many people are trying to unite the Ummah, it hasn't worked. But more precisely, why has Allah not given His support and Nusrah to any of these endeavors? And you could argue that it's the opposite. Literally, there's no support. Allah's lack of support for any of these endeavors is interesting. We need to examine why Allah is not lending His support to any of these endeavors. Because Palestine's been in a mess for what, 80, 90 years now? How many khutbas, how many hajjs, how many du'as? But nothing seems to be happening. And likewise, the ummah is now more fragmented than it was when I was a student. So, it's not working what we're trying to do. We need to now approach it, um, look at things in a different way. And what I would say is that the thing that unites us is our faith. It's not uniting us right now because we are... Our understanding of the faith is yielding more divisions. So now, for example, you have the Sunni versus the Shia. And historically, maybe people who are Shia here, I'm not sure. Historically, there's always been differences between the, Sun, the Sunnis and the Shia. Historically, and they've, they've learned to live with each other. They haven't been killing, like we're seeing right now, blowing each other up and doing all these mad, crazy things. And then when you look within Sunni Islam, there's a lot of divisions, sectarian lines, and a lot of it is based down to lack of knowledge. A lot of it is due to lack of knowledge. So, maybe we need to re-examine our understanding of and our practice of Islam. 
And some of you may be thinking, where the hell is he going with this topic? Well, some of you may be scared. And he's just maybe he's, I know he's busy, but he should have done a, a, a biography about myself so you know who I am, because it kind of dispels um, some of the myths. So briefly before I go into it, I am uh, from Liverpool. My parents are from Yemen. I went to university in Liverpool. I had a degree in pharmacology. I then spent um, eight to nine years in Yemen uh, studying in a, a traditional Islamic uh, uh, school, Madrasa, called Dara Mustafa. And the primary focus uh, was the Sharia, specifically the Shafi'i school, um, spirituality of Tazkiyah, Hadith, Quran, uh, Sira, and other uh, science of human aqidah. And then came back and took up the post of Imam in Cardiff, Wales, for five years. And then I took up post in Liverpool as the, uh, the prison chaplain in Liverpool. And I've also worked, working in uh, Manchester Strangeways High Security Prison as a chaplain. And currently now I'm the Muslim advisor, chaplain, imam to the University of Liverpool and to John Moore's uh, University. Hopefully I might have dispelled some of, like, some of the anxieties uh, that people may have, some of the things I'm saying. I'm coming from a viewpoint of knowledge. I'm coming from a viewpoint of 20 years looking at this issue. And that's why it's, it's been intriguing for me because you've got me thinking and revisiting and re-examining certain things and looking at things that haven't worked and looking at things that have worked and traditionally, historically have worked. Inshallah. This is what I'm going to have a look at. So, if we were to ask, our, our faith as it's currently being practiced is not uniting us. So we need to re-examine that. And if we look back historically, the Ummah has been united. It has. Not because of there's a Khilafah, although that is an important aspect, uh, a central authority is, a, is an important aspect, but that's not the last, wasn't the reason why we, we were united. <coughs> so, the Hadith of Jibril. Who knows the Hadith of Jibril? In Sahih Muslim. Hands up. Listen, the Hadith of Jibril, which is the Hadith in which uh, um, the angel Gabriel comes to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the form of a man and asks him several questions. The first of which is, اخبرني عن Islam. Tell me what Islam is. And then the Prophet says, Islam are the five pillars. Shahada, Salah, Zakah, Hajj. Salah, salah Zakah, Hajj and fasting. Okay, obviously Hajj, last. And then uh, the angel Gabriel asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa what is Iman? And he gives the six pillars of Iman. Allah is angels' books. Um, Judgment, the messengers, and divine decree. And then the last thing is ihsan, spirituality. Historically, if you, were to, if you were to ask the question, and this question is important to help us understand why we are currently divided. How has Islam been understood, preserved, and transmitted by the vast majority of our scholars for the vast majority of our time? I'll repeat that again. How has Islam been understood, transmitted, and preserved by the vast majority of scholars 
for the vast majority of our Islamic history. And when we approach understanding of our faith from a historical perspective, it begins to shine light on how we should be today. So I'm not bringing some new, progressive, moderate, moderate Islam. What I'm saying is that we need to go back, see what were the standard for our faith. And if we're not at that standard, then we, we need to be at that standard. Why? Because Allah, the Prophet says in the hadith, my ummah does not agree on that which is misguided. My ummah does not come to agree on things which are misguided. So the idea of the ummah is general consensus on the things that they agreed upon. That's one of the greatest unifying aspects of our faith. And if we are moving away from the consensus of scholars on issues, like how we practice our faith, then that's where we're going to get into trouble, you see. So that's, that's the question. So we have two parts. This is the first one. How has our faith been understood, preserved, and transmitted by the vast majority of scholars for the vast majority of our time? And I'm spending, what, I've got eight or nine lectures I'm currently doing uh, in Liverpool just on this topic. And obviously I'm going to try and squeeze in the summary of those. But I would say that the five pillars of Islam, the Shahada, Salah, Zakat, Fasting and Hajj, has been traditionally the focus of the scholars of fiqh, jurisprudence, understanding our faith and fiqh. And more specifically, it's been the sole domain of expertise of a group of scholars called the Fuqaha, who, if we were to summarize, are people who will give us the summary of our Sharia. But so who are they? Well, the Hanafis, the Manikis, the Shafi'is, and the Hanbalis. These are the four uh, legal schools who are sophisticated techniques to prevent us from entering into innovation. Okay, so the an analyzing the Quran and Sunnah is not left to you and I or some guy on the Google or whoever. We have scholars who've done this. And the idea of in numbers, there's safety. But also more importantly, didn't the Prophet say, my Ummah does not agree on this guidance? So the Ummah have agreed that these four schools are important aspects to understand your Sharia. If you're going to bypass 1,400 years worth of Islamic tradition and scholarship, then what are you doing? And what are the problems you're causing? And as somebody who's worked with uh, people who are in prison, who are not as tact offenders, people who are in prison because they're, they're, they've been about to or have committed acts of terrorism, when I've sat with them, it's very interesting, also can be dangerous, but it's interesting. <laughs> these, none of them have yet today to come across one of these individuals, male or female, who has not bypassed this, tra this, this tradition, has not thrown out 1,400 years worth of Islamic scholarship as embodied by the four great schools 
And I don't have time to go into the ins and outs, because that's not the topic. But what I will say is that historically, this has bound this ummah. Historically, this is fact. And if I have time, I can prove it to you, as I proved it to many students at the University of Liverpool. But this is something for you to go away. And my challenge, MashaAllah, my challenge for you is to put the light on. Off my channel, there we go. Let there be light. <laughs> my challenge uh, uh, to anybody who has any doubts on this as a historical fact would be try and disprove what I'm saying. In other words, if you can go and if you can prove to me that the vast majority of our scholars, for the vast majority of our time, have not followed these four great imams, and you can prove it to me that historically, that, that, you know, the vast majority of scholars for the vast majority of our time have not followed these things, I'm with you. But in 20 years of research, I've yet to be proven wrong. Because it's fact. You have non-Muslims, historians, if you were to go to them, they'll tell you this. Non-Muslim historians, they'll say, and, you know, yeah, Islam, it's fact. These four schools are... Uh, the traditional Sunni uh, schools of jurisprudence. Uh, the, the Shias, they have their own uh, schools. Um, and, you know, obviously it doesn't apply to them. Um, with deference and respect uh, to them. But as Sunnis, this has united us. And historically has not divided us. Despite claims which are false. They've always united us. Now, we've got now, you know, follow these four schools. So we're bypassing and what you have is two extremes, right? You have the extreme, literally the extremist who will now reinterpret verses of jihad and so on and so forth and now see fit to go and stab people in Manchester or go and try and blow up a building or blow themselves up because they now reinterpreted the verses. And, you know, we don't need Imam Abu Hanifa. We don't need the Shafiris. We don't need Imam Malik. We don't need to do all that. We are men, and they are men. I have a mind, and they have a mind. We can reinterpret everything for the age we're living in. And you can see the results. You can see the unity that's caused. A, a evil word like an evil tree, no roots, not stable. But sadly, you also have the less violent spectrum which is also dangerous, although less violent. And then you have the other, which is like, still bypass the tradition, and let's reinterpret everything again for the modern world. And it's called progressive Islam. It's called, uh, um, all these new names they have, moderate Islam, whatever they want to call it, progressive. And this is criminal. Historically, this is criminal to do this. When you are now, literally, we don't need scholars. Like one man said to me, I don't need a, a scholar from the Middle East to tell me what to do in the UK. And just to give you an example, and I, I'm not lying, this is true. You know, one man uh, you know, said, and he, he prides himself as being a progressive Muslim, like, you know, well, we need to uh, revisit and relook the times of prayer. That's okay. You know, what are you proposing? He said, well, living in the UK, it's not really practical to uh, have prayers uh, moving around different times of year. 
next week, you know, the Dhuhr will be 12, Asr will be 2, and Mr. Hanafi will be a bit later. Maghrib is about when the sun sets and the Isha is quite close afterwards. So by December, your Dhuhr, your Asr, your Maghrib, and Isha will all be done within a, a, a few short hours. So he was, he was saying, well, let's just um, standardize the prayers. And he said, let's, well, let's keep, I said, okay, well, give me an example in your world of how this looks like. And he was, well, let's have Dhuhr, uh, let's have Dhuhr, let's have uh, Fajr, six o'clock all year round. So, you know, the lazy part of myself is saying, this sounds good. But it's obviously a dangerous point when you're, your lower self, your lower nefs, likes that. And you just sign you're on the wrong path. And Dohar, well, let's keep it at 12 all year round. Let's keep Asr. Let's keep Asr at 4. And let's keep Maghrib at 7. Isha later on, 8 or 9. So, okay, that's interesting. So, why that? It's why, you know, it's more in tune with the UK 9 to 5 working life. <laughs> and you guys are laughing, but this guy, um, he's serious. And he then said, so I said to him, okay, well, if that's for 9 to 5 working UK hours, what happens if I'm working evenings? Um, what happens if I'm working nights? Then what? How does that apply to me? doesn't apply to my reality. Oh, well, you know, you, you can't please everybody. Okay, okay. So I then said, okay, uh, well, what, what about Ramadan? What fasting? And the idea put forward was that, well, you know, we're going to you know, break our fast, you know, at night, which is, we've standardized seven o'clock throughout the year. So I said, well, what happens in December when Maghrib is four? And we have to wait now a few more hours. And you know, this is type of... For me, it's... Uh, coming from a tradition of hundreds of years of scholarship, connecting to, to a living tradition of scholar, of scholar, of scholar. For me, this is uh, playing God. It's playing both. Both sides are playing God. They are reinterpreting the verses. Neither of these extremes have any knowledge, neither of them understand, and neither of them are specialists. But this is the age where people are entitled now to relook and reinterpret. And my issue is not with the in interpreting. My issue is for God's sake, be knowledgeable on the, the thing you're trying to interpret. Why is it that Islam, why is it every other speciality no one can talk about it except for those from that field. I can't talk about chemical engineering. I can't talk about dentistry or mathematics or whatever you guys may be studying. But why when it comes to Islam, every single person that can talk and be heard and be listened to? Islam is the only thing. No other aspect, no other aspect and if anything, this is, the, this is the most dangerous aspect where if the uneducated, the unlearned, the non-pious, who don't understand the secrets behind certain aspects of our, our prayer and our zakah and our hajj and our wudu and so on, they don't understand the wisdom in these, in these things, place no light in the hearts. That our prayer times are not based on 
on the sun or the moon, worshipping the sun or the moon. And not because the Arabs in the, mid, in, in the time of the Prophet, they, they measured their time through uh, the sun and the moon. No, because these times are, have a specific spiritual benefit and they have an unseen dimension to them. But you can see the problem. You can see the problem. People who are not grounded in the tradition, have not studied Arabic, have not studied the Sharia, understand the Sharia in its essence, the maqasid of the Sharia, the, the very principles of the Sharia, five principles, have not understood that, have not understood the prophetic wisdom in a lot of these things. And you're going to now look at it as this is an Arab, medieval, desert religion that has no bearing in 2019 in Leeds, has no bearing on our reality, and can be divorced. So therefore we have to realign it. And the idea is that it's Islam for every time, every time and every place, because it's universal. It's been designed by Allah to be for every people every, in every time. So, our Sharia has united us, and specifically these four schools. So my, my idea, not idea, history says that we've been united in these four schools and the Ummah has accepted it, which is an endorsement from Allah. Because Allah says, Quran. Allah says, I have revealed the Quran, and I will preserve the Quran. And the Quran is not just the book, but the understanding behind the book, the understanding behind this faith will be preserved by the ulama. Allah also says, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ Ask those of remembrance. And who are the people of remembrance? The ulama. But as my progressive Muslim friend said, we don't need Arab scholars or Asian scholars living in the Far East or Middle East telling us what to do. And my argument is that well, you and I are not scholars. And why should people listen to us? And what level of scholarship do we need to be at to, to examine this faith? If you want to progress it, then it has to be done with some knowledge. And the, the faith does not need uh, progression. It needs tajdeed, renewal. What does tajdeed mean? Renewal, just making sure you're awake. Who's aware of the hadith of the Prophet about renewal of Islam? Who's aware of the hadith? Aware of the hadith about renewal, tajdeed? No? Never heard of it? There's a hadith in which our Prophet said, every hundred years that Allah will bring somebody who will bring life to this faith. You jaded, not bringing anything new, but, 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 but bring life, would, would revive that which people before had caused to die. It's a hadith. The idea that at, at key points in our history, the faith would, would, would need a kind of yani, like the resonance or the electric shock to wake it up. And Historically, that's been done. Does anybody know anybody in history who's done that? Excellent. Excellent. Al-Imam Ghazali, Barakallah Fiqh. 
Imam Ghazali. I'm a fan of Imam Ghazali. If you haven't heard of him, how many of you heard of Imam Ghazali? Just hands up high. Excellent, 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 excellent. If you haven't, go back. Because he's critical to the time we're living in. And Imam Ghazali was, uh, and before I go on to him, by the way, the aspect of Iman, the six pillars of Iman, uh, the, the ulama of Aqidah, the schools, the traditional Sunni Orthodox schools, have united the Ummah. You see. And historically, they were the, known as the Asha'ana, the Maturidiyah, and also the Ahl Hadith. I don't have time to go into them, but that's the vast majority of our scholars for the vast majority of time have unified as, and that these uh, approaches are the Sunni Orthodox approach to, to our Imam. Imam Ghazali is important. Imam Ghazali, he is somebody who lived in a time very similar to the time that we're living in. Very similar. There's some major differences, but for all in all, there are very interesting uh, um, overlaps. In that he lived in a time where Islam was largely a ritual. People prayed, people fasted, they did these things, but Islam became more of an outward thing. And that there was no essence behind it. There was no transformative aspect of the faith. It became robotic. In other words, it became autopilot. We do our salah, and we go. We do our isha, and we go. We fast Ramadan, and we go. Autopilot. And he was, Imam Ghazali, he was somebody who had a spiritual crisis. And that he realized that this autopilot mode he was in, despite his knowledge, it caused a crisis inside. And it disturbed him to the point where he could not talk anymore. And he spent 12 years of his life going out to find why he wasn't happy. Why he was empty inside. Why Islam was not giving him the sakina, the tranquility. Now this is a scholar who wrote many great works at his time. But yet he recognized because of his sincerity something wrong inside. And he then travels for 12 years and he encounters. And what he discovers, he discovers himself, his nafs. And he realizes that Islam, despite it being an intellectual, uh, 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 at his time very intellectual, that they, they, they peaked in sciences of, uh, of, uh, of Islam, but it became devoid of the inner. And what he realizes is that the heart and the diseases of the heart were something that had been largely neglected and marginalized in his time. And now it became about showing off. It, it was more of um, being the best, arrogance, pride, uh, riya, all these type of diseases came about. And what he does, he, when he has this uh, penny of the drop, or the, the penny dropping moment, the light bulb comes on, he then begins to write a book called Ihya Ulum al-Din, the revival of the religious sciences. And he produces that book. Now the question you're probably asking, 
What does that have to do with unifying the Ummah? If you're following, that's a, that's a good question to ask. I am not randomly plucking Imam Ghazali out. It's because that his approach unified the Ummah. Where's your Dalil? Where's your proof for that? Well, what he does is that he bridges the gap between the outward knowledge, the very intellectual approach of his time of Muslim scholars, and he bridged it with the inner. And he, he brought the equilibrium back, the balance. That yes, you need to be doing salah. Yes, you need to be doing halal. But what effect does that have on your heart? Are you feeling your prayer? In your sujood? Do you feel anything? Does your worship make you more humble or are you more arrogant? Are you looking down on Muslims who are not praying? Or the Muslims who haven't come today? Or the sister who don't wear hijab? Or the sister who doesn't wear naqab? Or whoever? Are you judgmental? Is that, if, that, if that's what you're taking from your worship, then you have a problem because you're similar to shaitan. Because shaitan did not bow to Adam. Why? I'm better than him. I'm made out of fire. He's made out of earth. Which is kind of an arrogant excuse. Because he couldn't really say what he wanted to say. And what he wanted to say, my worship, I worship you better than him. I'm better than him. This division. And again, Imam Ghazali brought, bridged the gap. And made people think about internally, their hearts. Allah says, Verily, in the body there is a mudra, a piece of flesh. If it's rectified, if it is sound, then the whole body is sound. And if it is corrupt, then the whole body is corrupt. Meaning that if your heart is corrupt, you will do corruptible actions. Even in the name of Islam. That's what we're seeing today. And the hadith of the Prophet Allah does not look towards your forms or how you look. Allah looks towards what? Your hearts. So the divine attention from Allah is the hearts. And I'm not, just to make sure, I'm not uh, uh, making insignificant the outward aspects of our faith. I'm a person of Sharia. I spent eight years of being Sharia. Shafi'i Fiqh. In no way am I saying we need to, like my progressive friend, yeah, let's you know, repackage Salah and let's put it all together. No, I'm not saying that. We have our Sharia. Outward forms of our deen, sunnahs are important. But if the sunnahs are making us arrogant, if the sunnahs are making us people who are showing off, who are not, uh, are not making us healthy, spiritually, something wrong with our approach. The sunnah is not wrong. But it's our approach. Okay. And there are many people who are sick in their form of Islam. So Imam Ghazali did what? He bridged his gap. He produced people, a group of, a generation of people to rethink their hearts and the diseases of the heart and the egos, the nafs, and amal and so which is in the Quran. قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ زَكَّاهَا وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ He is victorious, the one who has purified his ego, his nafs. And he is treacherous or has, has let it down for the one who doesn't, has, has neglected his nafs. And one of the greatest 
problems that we are having now, that is, you could say, one of the, one of the, the foundational underlying principles or, that, is, of, that is, make us not united, is that we have people with their egos, with their nafus, causing problems. So now, I am Arabic, you're Pakistani, I am this, you're that, I am this group, you're that group, there's arrogance, there's all these diseases of the heart that are now manifesting because we've yet to clean our hearts. Allah says in the Quran that nothing will be any use on the day of judgment except for the, the person who comes with qalbun salim, a heart that is sound, a good heart that is clean, that is not full of diseases. That is, some, that is a heart that will uh, uh, unify people. So when our hearts become clean, then that's when the unity appears. And Imam Ghazali produced a generation of people who began to look at this, become self-critical and re-examine. And Imam Ghazali lived in a time when the Crusaders were there, the Mongols. And in his book, he does not mention the Kuffar. He does not criticize the Kufar. His whole methodology is self-analysis. Because he realized the problem is not external, the problem is internal, the problem is the heart. Because we're, because we're outwardly, we're doing anything, but it's not having the results. Similarly to my friends, they are doing all the back in the day, trying to unify, but the approach was wrong because they didn't tackle the problem, which is the heart. And in this regard, Imam Ghazali produced this book, which talks in large sections of purifying one's heart, making you into prophetic characters. Allah says about our Prophet. And Imam Ghazali brought that back to people's attention and unified the Ummah, which then led to, two gener within two, two generations, you have Salah Hadin Ayyubi. Who was Salah al Ayyubi? Hands up who's heard of Salah al Ayyubi? Alright. Who is Salah al Ayyubi? You did have your hand up. Unless you were asking, could you go to the toilet? In that case, I'll ask somebody else. Huh? Alright. You had your hand up, but did see you. Who's Salah al Ayyubi? You speak Arabic? Yes. Take any Arabic. I'm Translated, he was the one that uh, um, opened up the lands of, of, of Palestine, and he was a great leader. That's what she. That's what she said. Uh, and yeah, but people don't know. And you're right. People don't know that he'd not come out of a vacuum. He did not just miraculously, miraculously just appear. That was two generations in the work. And if you trace it back, and you remember the Ghazali had a huge impact in producing Salah al Ayyubi, who then freed the lands of, of, of Philistine Jerusalem from the Crusaders. He produced people whose hearts were pure. And, I don't know how much time I have left, I'm going to wrap it up. Allah says in the Quran that. Allah does not change the condition of a people until they themselves change that which is within them. 
ان الله لا يغير ما بقوم حتى ما ب hold that word in light what i've just said in light of this approach the change that we want which is what we want to unify that will not happen until what we change what's within us more specifically what is within us the heart that verse has never been understood well, traditionally that verse was meant in a different way that verse when Allah revealed it the Muslims were on top and the idea was that if you change your good situation Allah will make it if you don't, if you don't behave correctly Allah will change your good situation into a bad situation historically that's the context nowadays we're looking in a whole different way which still applies in that the key to the issue is the heart until you change that which is within you if you couple that with that hadith Allah does not look towards just your outward forms. Look into the heart. If the heart is not clean, if the heart is full of disease, like the disease of arrogance that, that stops shaitan from bowing down, if that's what's in your heart, you will not be you're not going to unify them. If the heart is full of showing off, of hatred, you're not going to unify the ummah, despite what you want. If the heart has any other prerogative, a goal other than Allah and it is not sincere, you are not going to unite the Ummah. But the works of the heart and how to be sincere, how to not be arrogant, how to recognize the signs of arrogance, the signs of sincerity and insincerity. Al Imam al Ghazali produced that science of tazkiyah, of purification, and the scholars used it as a book to the point that Salah al Ayyubi had it as a standard teaching in his army. If you could have the talking, cut that talk, because I can't focus, and there's so much I need to get done, it's, it's so I just easy on that talk. If, you could, if it's to do with the eyesight, Bismillah, if it's not, then just leave it, because it can't be more important than uniting the Ummah. Inshallah, can't. Which is, that's what you're here for, right? To unite the Ummah. If it's something to do with the eyesight and sorting out, then you go outside, but it's, it's distracting me. So what was I saying? What was I saying? Slahuddin. Huh? Slahuddin and his army. After that, we moved there. Purification. Yes, and that's what Imam Ghazali brought forward. And when that happens, then the Ummah is united. And it's a slow approach. Going back to my friends, the activists, some 20 years ago who tried to unite the Ummah, I went to great lengths, I must say. They haven't transformed themselves. They're still the same individuals they were, bent out now. It hasn't left them spiritually well. The extremists, spiritually, they're, they're, they're really, it's really sad when you sit with them. I hope you never do, but I, I have. Uh, spiritually, they're empty. They're really empty. And a lot of them just leave Islam. A lot of them renounce the deen. Because in their minds, their approach was the only approach. And when they find that Allah did not help, it makes them doubt. Maybe Allah does not exist. Because I, we, we tried to do it. And we were promised that God would help us in our endeavors. And He hasn't. Therefore, God does not exist. And the hadith of the, of the Prophet describes such people that they leave this deen like an arrow leaves its target. So, 
So round it up quickly, Allah does not change a people's state until they themselves change up what is within them. And it's interesting that the general change you want, Allah says, I'll do that. You pay attention, Allah says, I will change the state of affairs on one condition that you change yourselves. The idea that we first change, we've got some power to change the world, it's not the way, it's not, it's not the Quranic outlook. The idea that you change yourselves first, and I'll take care of the general change. So you want to unify the Ummah? Deal with the heart. Remove the diseases that are stopping you from loving one another, from having mercy and compassion, wanting good, not looking at each other with arrogance or hatred. Remove these things and look at the way of Imam Ghazali to help you find people who embody that tradition, who've done that, and latch onto them and learn from that tradition. Because that tradition has led to Salah ibn Ayyubi. And I would say, in, in closing, that this spiritual approach or the, spirit, the forgotten revolution of spirituality, going back and being self-critical and purifying the heart, that's the thing when I look at my approach and the approaches of my friends over 20 years, I'm still standing, as a, as a song says, I'm still here, 20 years later. I'm talking to students 20 years later. And that, because I took this approach. What I'm talking to you about right now, that was my approach for 20 years. I spent nine years, eight years of my life committed to this approach of spirituality and, and sharia, and the deen, but then focusing on the inward, focusing heavily on the books of Imam Ghazali and people like him, and just seeing the fruits.